Well, good morning, church. I hope that you have um, been challenged and encouraged uh, this week through the missions conference, through the different venues. I know our kids have had some real privileges to have real live missionaries sharing with them in their, in their classes. And, and we had an opportunity yesterday morning, and, and uh, uh, it was great hearing from, from both Jonathan and Julie Mc, uh, McDowell. Thank you very much for your faithfulness and for bringing some of that uh, and sharing with us a little snapshot of, of your work and God's faithfulness in your lives. And it was a, it's been a real um, special treat for me to hear from my, my younger brother, Thomas, last week. He opened the Word of God, and as the missions team had given him uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 20, he unpacked that for us as, as we talked about one body and many members. And, and Thomas really helped us understand the importance of the ministry of each individual member in the body of Christ working together as we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 20, which says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, many parts, yet one body. And so he, he brought from his missions experience the importance of all the different parts, the diversity, even the beauty of the diversity of the body working together for the one mission. And that's what we're going to zero in this morning. What is that mission that God has given us? And of course, you're going to see this mission throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament. We'll even look at a few texts in the Old Testament later this morning. But I couldn't think of a, of a better text to land on this morning than what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Um, and so let's read again verses 18, what Jesus said when he gave this commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we want to talk about three aspects here, three parts of this commission. And our first point this morning is the basis for that mission. The, the basis for the mission is Jesus's authority. And that's what we see in verse 18 when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But let's stop and think about that for a minute. Um, what does he mean when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, given to me, um, didn't Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, already have all authority from eternity past? And in fact, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we read that indeed he did. Uh, in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 16 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So here we have everything, right? The physical realm, the spiritual realm, stuff that we can't even see or imagine that's out there was made by him and for him. So clearly, yes, Jesus did have authority 
over heaven and on earth from eternity past, at least on earth from the point in which he made the earth. He lived for a whole long time, like eternity past, before he even created the earth. But at the moment of creation, which Jesus did, he had authority over it. So how can Jesus then be given authority? What does that mean? And and further, uh, remember the Great Commission happens at the end of Matthew, right? The Gospel of Matthew. Well, one of the key themes of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus's authority. And, And we went through Matthew as a church several years ago, and we saw that Jesus had authority over disasters and demons and disease and even death in Matthew. So so what's going on here? I'm going to give you several suggestions here of what Jesus is talking about when he says all authority has now been given to him. Um, and, 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 And theologians, people have asked this question. I'm not the first one to ask it. But I think when we're reading the Bible, if we see something that we, doesn't quite make sense, it's wise to, to stop and ask the question and take a deeper dive. And often what we find is deeper faith, deeper truth, right? Things that we can apply to our lives. And so one um, aspect here that I think was happening is that we see Jesus' authority being clarified. So it was, it was one thing for Peter uh, months before this to, to say at a high moment, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But it was a huge step, like a seismic step further to grasp that the man they were following all this time that they ate with and traveled with and slept next to for three years was actually the living God, the pre-existent, eternal living God. And so Jesus is now making it really clear to them, now that he is resurrected from the dead, he's making it really clear to these disciples, especially for those who are still hesitating to fully believe, he's, he's making it clear he is God himself, right, with all authority. And, and he's saying to them, in a sense, you, you remember those nights that we slept out there um, in the wilderness, looking up at the stars? And some of you were doing what, what dudes do, you know, laying there, yucking it up, joking about passing gas. I was ordering the stars and creating art out of the nebulae, which is like celestial gas, right? That's what I was doing. That's who you've been next to all this time, okay? And it's just helping their heart and their head all connect and catch up with the reality of his eternal authority. So he's clarifying authority. But also, I think there's a sense in which we're seeing Christ's humiliation reversed. Now, now what I don't mean by that is that Jesus is no longer man, okay? For eternity future, Jesus will be, because of his incarnation, the God-man, which makes him very relatable to us. In fact, it's a good thing for us that not only is Jesus God, but in heaven he is still human. God and human at the same time, right? Because he is a compassionate high priest interceding and praying for us at the right hand of God the Father, reminding God the Father of of the fact that his blood covers our sins and and, and that we are clean and so we can go before that throne of grace with with boldness even and certainty even even as sinners. And so it's a beautiful thing for us that Jesus Christ is 
man. So I don't mean that now that Jesus rose from the dead, he ceased somehow to be human. Uh, he still has a, a, he has a resurrected human body by which our future resurrected bodies are patterned after. And that's a topic for another day, but that is a awesome thing to think about, especially if you're facing death or dealing with death. But here I think we see um, uh, a reversal of Christ's humiliation that came from his incarnation. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8 talks about something that theologians call the kenosis or the emptying that Jesus did of his divine prerogative when he took on human flesh. There's some mystery here. It does not mean Jesus ceased to be God, but in a sense, he, he veiled or set aside his glory and some of, some of his divine prerogative of authority when he became human. And so we read in Philippians 2 verse 6 about Jesus Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why not? Because he was equal with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so one thought is that this may be referring to the restoration of Jesus' rightful power and authority that he set aside in the incarnation. Now that he has risen from the dead and is now robed once again in glory and in power. Now, I'm going to just briefly mention that there's another, there's another sense in, in, in which, and I don't, you, we won't find this in our notes, but in a sense in which Satan had been given temporary authority as the prince of the power of the air, okay? And when, when Jesus died on that cross, Satan thought he had prevailed. Understand, the Bible tells us that, that Satan himself entered the heart of Judas Iscariot when he betrayed Jesus. So understand, there was a lot of spiritual dynamics and warfare going on when Christ died on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, that was a, the final breaking of Satan's authority. Now, Satan still has temporary dominion in many people's hearts and minds, but as the gospel is now penetrating every people group, Jesus' authority is shining through, and, and Satan is being reminded once and again that he's a loser, okay? That wasn't in the notes. That's another uh, aspect here of Jesus' authority now being present and visible. But, but I want to focus on uh, a third, or maybe it's the fourth point I'm making this morning, on, on Christ's authority, and that's earned authority. And, and so this may, um, this may intrigue us a little bit, like how can Jesus earn more authority than he really had if he had all authority from eternity past? But hear me out for a moment. What I'm talking about here is the authority of a victorious hero, okay? The kind of, of, of authority that's earned through valor. So imagine being in a, in a room full of military generals, okay, but in walks a low-ranking war hero, all right, someone who's been granted, uh, you know, maybe someone with just a few stripes on their sleeve, but they went in there in the heat of battle, and, and, and they, they, they uh, earned authority with valor. They earned maybe a, 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 a you know, a, a, a medal of honor for, you know, for, for, great valor on the battlefield, 
um, saving lives, exposing themselves to, to mortal risk in battle uh, for the sake of, of, of others, right? Taking it to the enemy. I think of like Sergeant York back in World War I, right? Um, and, and so, so that person in that room full of generals may have the lowest positional authority in the room, but may have more respect than anyone else in the room because of, of earned valor. To kind of bring it to our context more during a missions week, imagine that uh, we had invited, and these guys had come, uh, a round table, and it was for Rocky Family Night, and I hope it would be a great showing, but we had John Piper, all right, and, and John MacArthur, and, and David Platt as our guests, and we had a round table, and they were going to talk about missions. Probably most of you would show up. You'd be interested to hear what these guys have to say. They have a lot of, uh, they got big followings, right? But, but in walks Jonathan McDowell, and in walks um, uh, Mike Wilde, you know, in his sandals, right? You know, if, if you remember to wear sandals. And, and so those two guys walk in, and, and, and maybe, maybe Sydney pops up, right? Let me tell you that in my mind, I have actually more respect for Jonathan and, and Mike and Sydney when it comes to missions than those big names I just mentioned, because while those guys have a lot of knowledge of missions, a lot of true knowledge, right, um, they haven't actually gone and done it. The, the people who have actually gone and done it and, and persevered in, in hardship and suffered and, and sweat and, and, and served in this way, there's some, there's some earned authority in the room. And, and so that is now Jesus Christ. While he always had positional authority, so he's never the low-ranking guy, right? He, he always had, you know, he always had positional authority, which he divested in his incarnation. But now Jesus has the authority of a hero, which should be in the mind of every disciple of Jesus. The authority of a hero earned through valor because of his human experience dying on a cross for the sins of mankind and then rising from the grave. And even as I think about Jesus' valor, I'm, I'm struck again by his humility and his love that he would come down and die on a cross for me and for you and for all who trust in him. Well, after detailing the humility and the valor of Jesus in temporary, temporarily setting aside his, his glory through his incarnation and his death on the cross in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Paul concludes with this doxology. Therefore, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's no competition in the divine trinity, right, uh, for glory. Uh, it's not that, that, okay, if more people worship in Jesus, God the Father is somehow uh, 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 neglected. No, here we see God the Father saying, that's my son who did that. Honor him. Worship him. Give him glory, for he deserves that glory. And so now Jesus here, in making this statement about authority, what he's doing is he's, he's passing on some, not all by any means, but some of his authority to his disciples. And, and this extends to us today 
And that's the authority to go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of humanity, to, to everyone, okay? And, and we're to do that with the authority of Jesus. And this is very important to understand in a relativistic culture that denies the right to exclusive truth claims that we have today, that we live in today, where what gives you the right to say that I'm wrong and, and Jesus is the only way to salvation? Why can you go and, and say that the Buddhists or the Hindus or the, the Muslims are wrong? I mean, that's just bigotry. Well, we have that right and that responsibility, in fact, that divine command, that divine authority, because Jesus passed on his authority to you and to us when he gave us this mission. So let's talk about the mission. It's our second point this morning. The definition of the mission. What is the mission exactly? Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, there's a lot in that sentence. We're going to unpack it. But I want, let, give me a short two-word definition. What is the mission? Shout it out. Make disciples. Great. Well, what is a disciple? Amen. A follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, disciple, discipleship is the process of being a follower of Jesus and helping others follow Jesus. You could, you could call this being and making, right? We can't make what we aren't. You can't give away what you don't have. So the first part of discipleship is, is learning to be a disciple. But part of being a disciple is making disciples, passing that on. And, and I love how uh, earlier this morning in, in ABF, we were able to, to listen to Elizabeth talk about just life and life. Elizabeth and Emma in an awesome conversation, talk about life and life relationships where we're just passing on what it looks like. Um, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson put it, disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. It is binding on all Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Jesus Christ. So that's the mission. Make disciples. Be and make disciples. So what is the scope of the mission? How far are we to take this? Everywhere, all right? Give me some more specifics. What did Jesus actually say? All the nations is the scope of the mission. He says, go therefore, and this is letter A in your notes, and make disciples of all the nations. Now here the command go makes it clear that the church is now to have an intentionally outward push with the gospel. If you, if you remember in the Old Covenant, right, the Old Testament, the idea was, was God's chosen people were to be like a city on a hill, a light for people to come to, and a few did, some did. Um, now we're to go out there and, and take that light, take that fire, those individual tongues of fire we have in our hearts, and we're to spread it around the world like a blaze. That's the command to go. We're to take the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ to each and every nation 
on earth. Now, the most strong imperative verb in the sentence is make disciples, okay? So you could translate this actually, go and make disciples, or you could translate it as you go, make disciples. The idea being we're supposed to all be in motion, and every one of us are called to go and make disciples. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But understand that make disciples, uh, if we're to diagram this in the original language, that is the imperative verb here, make disciples. Some people think, well, the Great Commission applies to, say, missionaries who leave their nation and go in that sense. And for the rest of us, we can talk about it now and then, feel guilty now and then, and that's it. No, every one of us is called, if you're a disciple, you are called to be a disciple maker. You are to make disciples of the nations, of all nations. So evangelism is the beginning of this mission's task, but the end is discipleship. It's, it's following, it's obedience to Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about the nations for a moment here. And if you've been around Rocky for years, this isn't the first time you've heard this, but this is very important. Okay, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And maybe you're looking at a map and it's easy to count nations, which we can do on a map. Um, and, 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 you know, consider them as uh, lines drawn on the map or a geopolitical nation. But, but that's actually not what Jesus is talking about. And in fact, if it was, we could conclude that, the, that, that there are disciples in every nation because it's true. There are disciples of Jesus in every geopolitical nation, even places like North Korea. There's an underground church. There's a massive underground church in China right today. More evangelical Christians in China than in the United States of America today, in persecuted China, right? That's incredible. Now, there's a lot more people in China than here, okay? But um, that's incredible. So, and, and you might think, well, okay. I mean, I think we kind of got it done then. But that's not what Jesus means when he says nations. The, the, the actual Greek word uh, for nation that Jesus, that, that, that this is translated into or, or written in is ethnos, pantas ethnos, which means all people groups. And ethnos is a people group. So we need to think in terms of the Cherokee nation and, and the Wano nation and the Wolof nation and what we call the Aroma nation. That's what we need to think about, people groups. And, and, and we see this theme throughout the Bible. In the beginning of the book, God told Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in the, the middle of the book, right, the middle of the Bible, we, we read the psalmist crying out in Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Now keep, keep listening. Here, here are the synonyms that we see in Psalm 96 for nations. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. People groups. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. In, in Isaiah chapter 12, the, the prophet cries out, verse 4, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, 
make known his deeds among the peoples, the, the people groups. That's, that, that's what this Hebrew word that's used here for nations means. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Okay, now if we were to go to the very end of the book, to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we read in verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we see here that when the Bible talks about nations here, he's talking about people groups. And, and in the way we look at the world today, where you have lines drawn on the map, you have hundreds of people groups often in one nation. We have hundreds of people groups right here in ours. And it's incredible in an in a increasingly globalized world, right? Um, even here in Niceville, right? Uh, we have folks from other ethnic groups, other nations. I just got word this week, one of you met, a, met an Afghan lady up in Crestview. We had an Afghan family that my wife and I got to know here in Niceville. And, and these are places, you know, these are people who are coming from places that it's hard to get into as a worker overseas. Yet yesterday morning at our family breakfast, Jonathan McDowell shared a slide about a, and it was titled, I believe, A People Group Focus of the World. Uh, we need to be, if we're going to really follow and, and fulfill the Great Commission, we need to be world Christians with this vision for the world that God has, right? Where we understand that, yes, there are tens of thousands of, of ethnic groups with their own language and their own worldview, their own way of thinking, right? And, and they need the gospel translated and, and communicated into their culture in a way that they can distinctively understand the gospel, and, and can, can gather into a, 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 a group of Christians, into a church, and, and worship God in a way that they can all understand. And, the, and, and we have a lot of missionaries in this world. I, I believe the Joshua Project data you, you, um, you researched was around 450,000 missionaries, something like that in the world. And I believe you shared yesterday that, that, that only around 5,000 of that group are actually targeting the least reach, the hardest reach. And there are reasons for that. Um, uh, groups are, people groups are least reached for a reason, okay? There's, there's war, there's, there's culture, there are things that, that are very good at keeping the gospel out. And, and it takes a lot of energy and effort and sacrifice to get into these places. But the bottom line is that a small minority of our worldwide missionary force are actually going to the least reached people groups. And, and if we're going to fulfill this commission, right, and obey Christ, we've got to prioritize making disciples among the unreached, instead of just the known. You know, what, what my experience has been uh, in churches in America, we get the most excited about uh, ministry to people that we have experience with, okay? And, and, and for good reason. We, we love them, we've, we've connected, and, and it can be hard to really get to know unreached people groups. But we need to be committed and, and pray, and there are a lot of resources um, uh, one of them is just get on, on the web and, and, and Joshua Project, you know, Google that. Um, Operation World, Google that. There are guides where you can pray for the people groups of the world and for the nations. But what I want you to remember, and if there's one thing you remember from this, from this message, it's this. The mission 
does not belong to just the missionary. Let me say that again. The mission does not belong to just the missionary. Otherwise, those half a million missionaries that are out there, it's theirs, and the rest of us, hey, we got to kind of, you know, cru- cruise through life doing what we want to do, right? Um, you know, worshiping Jesus, but, but kind of living the good life. That's not what he's called us to. He's called all of us to, to completing his mission. That's why our, our theme for this conference is one body, many members, one mission. And, and what we mean by this, several things, every goer, like Jonathan and Julie, needs an army of senders. Every goer needs a group of people who will pray for them and, and support them and, and really be partners in the task. And, and I appreciated my brother Jamie Van Pelt yesterday at the, at the breakfast. Um, he got up and he said, look, uh, as we raised our kids, we, we taught them that every Christian is to be a goer, a, a sender, or frankly, disobedient. And, and I look at Jamie and, and, and Kelly's kids and they're both preparing for work on the mission field. They won't, both want to be goers. You know, you can raise your family like that as well. Now, God's got a call, right? God has got to individually work in, in, in your kid's life if, they're in, if he's calling them overseas. And he doesn't call us all overseas. But we're all to be a part of that task. And so an application for us would be, hey, listen, for those of you who are in life groups, and it's, it's more than half of us, right? Uh, what your life group has been tasked to do, that, it, that being to be senders for a missionary, that is really, really important, what you have to do, okay? So be a good sender. Uh, like, know your people, communicate with them. You know, it, you can really encourage a missionary by sending her or him a note. I mean, just getting a note saying, I, I pray for, I'm praying for you, we love you, um, especially if, if, if they can tell by your note that you've actually been reading their prayer updates, that means a lot, okay? It means a lot. Prayer changes things. Uh, that is a significant contribution to the task, but you've got to communicate and, and, and build a relationship. And so when our workers come back, especially that's what's so great about these missions conferences, church, one way to be a faithful sender is after a service to go talk to them and get to know them and invite them over to your home. And I, I hope and trust that that's been going on this week. And you know what? Uh, this conference is not over. You can still do it today if you haven't done that. And I, I get that we're busy, but one great way that you can rightly prioritize the task is to invest some of your time in hospitality to our sent ones, to our missionaries. Now, I want to, at this point, um, just stop, and, and, and this isn't what I'm saying meant to be a rebuke. Actually, I really appreciate um, last Sunday night. I mean, we had a good time. Uh, we had a, the, the whole missions fair. It's, it's a neat time to learn more about what, what's going on, to taste foods from around the world. But, but what really the benefit of all that is, is it's an opportunity for each life group to really communicate with their missionary and to represent them well. And you guys did a bang-up job on that Sunday night. I mean, every year it gets better and better. So great job, life groups, representing your missionaries well. So we need to send well, but we also are responsible for going. Each of us making disciples right here among our own geopolitical nation to the 
ethnos, the people groups who are here, including our own people group. I really appreciated my brother Thomas's comment last Sunday about how, how much it means to him when someone writes him, uh, when he knows someone's praying, but he said nothing encourages him more than to hear stories about disciple making right here in America. Did you guys, you guys remember that? Uh, nothing encourages him in the task more to continue and persevere and to every day be out there sharing Jesus when he knows that you're doing that here. And that is so important, brothers and sisters, because with integrity, we are not a missional church if we're just supporting missionaries but not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors and, and our colleagues. Does that make sense? I mean, how can we really be a ascending base truly if we're not being faithful to the commission here? So, so the mission is for every Christian, every disciple, a disciple maker. And, and I, it, one of the places we start is with our own children, with, it, with it, within our families, but that is certainly not where it ends. And God has given each of you um, uh, influence and, and, and um, uh, access to people that I don't have, right? Uh, where you can share Christ. So our job as a church is to equip each of you to be a goer right there in your, in your circles of influence, in your spheres, whether it be at work, or whether it be at school, or whether it be on your street, in your neighborhood, whether it be among your, your group of friends that you have online. We all should be pointing people to Jesus Christ and making disciples. Now he said, and this is letter B, that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when I read this, I think, wow, this is the first and the most complete presentation of the divine trinity in the Bible. So let's not miss that. What we see here implied is the equality of the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we're to baptize new Christians into. And so we're to teach them about who God is, right? But who are we to baptize here? Well, that would be new disciples of Jesus. When people come to know the Lord, they are called to be baptized. In other words, believers are to be baptized. Not babies, but those who are disciples of Jesus, according to this command that Jesus gave. Now note here, and this is very important, that baptism is not optional for disciples of Jesus. Um, baptism is often the beginning of persecution in many parts of the world for, for Christians. It's often not when they first profess Christ, but when they are baptized that their families reject them and that they start uh, having to deal with a deeper level of, of persecution, and yet it's not optional. Baptism is very important. We're to also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so this includes the task of making disciples and gathering them into new churches. So the, the Great Commission was designed, in a sense here, to be self-perpetuating. Churches planting churches that plant churches. And to do this effectively and biblically, we need to not just have a mindset of, okay, uh, and sometimes as I think Americans we think efficiency, and so, okay, we'll have a class, we'll have Sunday school, and as long as my kid goes and sits in a class once a week, they get taught, and then that's it. But no, let, let our sister Elizabeth teach us by her life example. We need to all build life-on-life -life relationships with people where we show and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. I mean, truth is, is caught more than it's 
taught. And so instead of just distant relationships, close relationships where we say, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I fail. But come into my life and see me persevering in following Jesus. And let's follow him together. That's what we mean by life on life discipleship. And it is awesome. So let me call you, despite your sin, your failures, um, maybe you're afraid if someone gets too close, they'll be disappointed. Just keep pointing them to Jesus, and and it's going to be all right. It's going to be awesome. And you'll encourage them, and they're going to encourage you in this obedience, this discipleship, this, this teaching and showing people to observe all that Christ has commanded. So how important is this mission? Well, it's its completion will hasten the return of Jesus Christ. That's pretty important. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus didn't just say, you know, when everything just gets worse and worse and more storms and more, he talked about that stuff, but what he said is you want, you want the end to come, the gospel of the kingdom, despite Satan's pushback and persecution and all kinds of hardship, the victorious gospel advance, that is what brings the end. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all people groups. He used the word ethnos here. And then the end will come. And let me tell you, when we look at that, it's the end, like finishing the task. It's doable. It's close. The mission which he gave to a small band of blue-collar followers, mostly, in a backwater 2,000 years ago, it is being fulfilled today at an incredible pace. I mean, just think about these strides that we've seen in the last 100 years or so. In, in, the, in, in 1950, the church in what we call the global west, by that I mean like North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, um, places that were colonized by Europeans, okay? Uh, the church in the global west outnumbered that of the, the number of evangelicals in the rest of the world, Christians in the rest of the world, okay? Today, what we call the global south, that would be South America, Africa, Asia, it outnumbers the church in the global west, that would be us in a sense, it, number, it outnumbers us by 2.5 times. So don't be discouraged when you, when you see our nation, it's so easy to be ethnocentric, right? And kind of draw a, a map and a worldview that's all about us, right? But as we see our nation in many ways rejecting many of our founding principles, and, and I, I believe me, we need to keep discipling our own nation. We need to make a stand for the gospel. We need to be a light in our society. But know this, that, that there are, God is working. We should never think, well, everything's just going downhill because it's going downhill here in terms of morality. Understand that even if you want to take a small slice and, and look at the Episcopal church and you look at what we see happening in the West and the ordaining of homosexuals and the denial of uh, the inerrancy of Scripture that we see going on, right? Understand that there are Episcopal brothers and sisters in Africa who are holding fast to the Word of God and, and holding back some of that decay and decline. So praise God for what He's doing among many of our African brothers and sisters who believe the Bible and love the gospel who are part of the Episcopal Church. By the way, I don't mean just, in, you know, we could pick on any denomination here. Um, and for my brothers and sisters who are the, in the Episcopal Church, I say don't flee it. Stand for Jesus. There's a rich history you've got, a rich gospel history that you have. But God is doing great things. In one century, the African Evangelical Church grew from 10 million to over 360 million 
people. And if you look at the population, it's not through population, some through population, but more through conversion. People come in and know Jesus. Islam is spreading through, through birth. The gospel is spreading statistically through conversion. People hearing the gospel of Jesus from other people. And you may think, well, where are the Billy Grahams? But Jesus' model of discipleship wasn't through Billy Graham, although he used Billy Graham in a powerful way, but it's through you. It's through each Christian going and, and making disciples. Multiplication, not addition. Today, there's an estimated one million believers, and, and likely more than that, in Iran. And you know what? That's not coming through big, giant gospel crusades or a famous guy on TV with lots of followers, right, or on, 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 on the internet. This is coming through individual gospel witness such that uh, missiologists tell us that the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, underneath persecution. God is building his church globally as his people obey his mission. And let me just say one thing. This is in my notes, and I know um, we're getting towards the end here, but, but let me just say one thing. It's easy sometimes when we hear that, right? We hear stories. I mean, Jonathan shared stories that were awesome yesterday of, of like, uh, you know, missionaries in the 1920s uh, and 1930s and 1940s who went to parts of Indonesia and they were interned in Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps, okay? And the suffering they endured, right? And it's easy sometimes to think, man, I, I you know, that's th- those heroes. I, I, I could never do that. But you know what? If the Holy Spirit's in you, you could. And you know what? I think you would. Uh, if, if you were set, part of the reason that we probably don't appreciate our Bibles enough is we have all this access, But if suddenly you did not, like you were trapped somewhere and you didn't have your Bible, I think the one thing that you would long for more than anything would not be your car or your dog or your house. I believe it would be your Bible if you know the Lord. So I think this would be true of all of us who know the Lord. We've just been placed in different situations. But let's not let it have to come to that to appreciate his word or his mission. But this is a big mission and we need help to accomplish that mission. And so our final point this morning is the power we see here in this text. The power for the mission. And before we conclude with verse 20, let's look again briefly at verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And you know, sometimes I think um, when we look at the post-resurrection uh, um, appearances of Jesus. Maybe we get a little confused. We think, okay, you know, the, the big things happened. He rose from the dead. And we might just kind of stop thinking about what all happened. But why did Jesus call his disciples to walk 100 miles north to Galilee to spend time with him post-resurrection? That was the instruction. You remember he gave Mary in the garden when he, re- when he, when he appeared to her. He he'd said, tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. So why? Well, we don't know for sure why they had to do this, you know, this journey back to Galilee, but I, I think it had something to do with their ministry started in Galilee. That's where it all started. And I think this was to, to give the disciples some time to process everything. I mean, he had appeared to them in the, in the room when they were all meeting. They knew he rose now. He, he showed Thomas his hands and his feet, right? They know this, there's no question, but now they need a little time to process his death and his resurrection on, on a walk of faith. And, and to come back full circle to the, the place where they started their ministry together. And so we read in verse 17 in Galilee, 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, does that seem strange to you? You've seen the resurrected Jesus. How could you doubt Jesus? Well, I think maybe these disciples were maybe pinching themselves still. You know, their, their hopes had been dashed at the cross. And, and so now they may be still um, uh, believing, but, but needing to believe a little bit more because this is all a little too good to be true. And you know, the, the Greek word here for doubted can also mean hesitated. And that might be a better translation. But some hesitated. Well, have you ever hesitated to believe God and to follow his mission? I have. These disciples who became the apostles, the heroes of the faith. You go to Europe and you see carvings of them all over the cathedrals throughout Europe, right? These apostles had feet of clay. That Their response to Jesus' arrest and his murder had, frankly, not been their finest hour. And so they're recovering from that crisis of faith, a failure even that they had had when they had all fled Jesus, right? Um, and we need to remember that you and I, too, have feet of clay. You, you can start on a mission, you can start on the mission, and, and then you can fall into sin and, and crash and, and burn. And the, the beautiful truth here is that God uses flawed vessels to accomplish his mission. And that is why he promised us his presence to give us power. It's not our own strength or even our own faithfulness that gives us power to do his mission. It's his presence. And so he ends this commission in the very end of Matthew's gospel is, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That word, behold, idu in Greek, it means look here, listen up. Look here, I am with you always. It reminds me of, of what God told Joshua when he gave him a really hard mission. He said, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And that's where you're to find your courage. And so God, brothers and sisters, is with us. Despite our own failings or hesitation, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in your heart and God is with you. That means Jesus is with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is with you? That the things that we would do if we believed this every day, if we really believed it, the things we would do that we don't normally do, right? The things that we wouldn't do that we're often tempted to do. But this promise that Jesus will be with us, it's not dependent on how we feel. It's a truth statement he made. He is with us. And so let's land the plane. Jesus uses his authority, we see here, to give us a mission that will be fueled by his presence. That's the sum total of all of this. And missions is tough, but it's fueled by Jesus's presence. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, at the conclusion of our missions week, is your hand on the spear? Are you, are you holding on to the spear, somewhere on that spear? We're, we're attacking the gates of hell is your hand on the spear? Are you, are you fighting the battle, right? It takes many members working together as one body to accomplish the mission. Maybe when it comes to the work in Aroma, Julie and Jonathan are the tip of that spear, but are you praying for them? Are, are you helping push that spear into the enemy? Is your hand on that shaft giving them momentum and help? Do you care more 
to experience the fullness of Christ's presence, or do you care more about being comfortable in this life? If, if Jesus is truly our Lord and his mission is ours, we will get to experience more and more of his presence, and there really is nothing greater than that. And so I, I hope you believe and hear this morning that missions is not just a program of the church. It's not supposed to be just a, a missions conference we do once a year. It is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ, and so it should be our heartbeat too. And that's why our church's vision statement is that we exist to know him and to make him known. Do you? Let's, let's pray together. Help us to follow you, Lord Jesus, as a hero. I pray that we would believe in the mission you've given us and that we wouldn't try to do it on our own, but that we would be filled with you every day. We thank you for your presence in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage, the joy, the love, uh, the thoughts of Christ constantly in our hearts such that, that it would come out, that we would be sharing with our neighbors, with our colleagues, with all those that you have put in our orbit. Lord, help us to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is your power for salvation to all who believe. I pray this in, in the name of our, of our Lord and Savior and hero, Jesus. Amen.